On this episode of Newt's World, in his new book, The Authoritarian Moment, Ben Shapiro examines the real authoritarian threat to America, the supposedly anti-fascist left. The authoritarian left is aggressively insistent that everyone must bend to its values, demanding submission and conformity. The left is obsessed with putting people in categories and changing human nature. Everyone who opposes it must be destroyed. Ben Shapiro looks at everything from pop culture to the Frankfurt School, social media to the Founding Fathers, to explain the origins of our turn to tyranny and why so many seem blind to it. The authoritarian moment lays bare the intolerance and rigidity creeping into all American ideology and prescribes the solution to ending the authoritarianism that threatens our future. Here to talk more about the themes in his book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Ben Shapiro. He is editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire, host of The Ben Shapiro Show. His latest book, The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent, is a New York Times bestseller and is available now. Ben, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And you've done so many different things. What prompted you to write the new book? Well, I think over the course of the last year, watching as not just social media mobs went after people, but as corporations started to reflect the whims of the social media mobs, watching as the public health establishment started to reflect politics rather than actual public health guidance, watching as the media went out of its way to continue to promulgate falsehoods in the name of particular political points of view. It was deeply frightening, and it got me to thinking about the argument that had been used repeatedly with regard to Republicans, particularly President Trump over the past few years, which is that Trump himself was an authoritarian and that everybody who voted for him was an authoritarian, and particularly in the aftermath of January 6th. I started writing this book shortly before January 6th, but completed it in probably the month and a half after January 6th. In the surrounding time to January 6th, the the push from the left was that the great authoritarian threat to the country was from the right. Therefore, you had to give the government ultimate power. Therefore, corporations that were cramming down particular mandates in terms of ideology on their employees were doing something good. Therefore, the public health officials could lie to you and tell you what to do, because obviously, if you're trying to stop authoritarians, then being a little bit authoritarian is okay. I noticed that the real authoritarianism here was not coming from the right. It was coming from a very aggressive and radical left that was reflecting a lot of the precepts of wokeism, reflecting the precepts of critical race theory, reflecting the precepts of a sort of top-down censorious belief system. And I think what I was really trying to get a hold of is why were there so many Americans who felt compelled not only to vote for President Trump, who felt under attack. Over the past decade, I think the number of Americans on the right who have gone from feeling as though you know, they were just members of a body politic who disagreed with other people to feeling their lifestyle was legitimately under attack, has risen dramatically. I don't think that that is unfounded. I'm really curious because your own background, you were sort of at the heart of the system. You went to UCLA at the age of 16, graduated with a BA in political science, and then you went to Harvard, graduated from Harvard Law School in 2007. And in the middle of that rapid education period, you became the youngest nationally syndicated columnist in the U.S. at 17 when the Creator Syndicate hired you. I mean, first of all, how do you balance that many different things simultaneously? 
you know, I'm lucky. I, I tend to write really quickly, so that is very helpful. But you know, I, I would say that most of the stuff I was doing sort of fed itself in the sense that, you know, if I was learning things in law school, that very often came out in my political writing. If I was debating issues in politics, that very often came out in the classroom in law school. And I've been very fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to speak on these public issues for a really long time. And and I've been able to sort of mature and flesh that stuff out publicly, which is, as you know, sort of a dangerous business, right? Sometimes you say things when you're 17 and you look back when you're 37, like, wow, that's probably not a great idea. But that's also allowed me the opportunity to get a lot of feedback. And that feedback loop, I think, has hopefully made me a better thinker over time. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because you're so energetic and I guess in some ways so insightful at an early age. Your first book, Brainwashed, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth, came out in 2004 when you were 20. But of course, by then, you'd already been a syndicated columnist for three years, so I guess it was old hat. But to some degree, it seems to me that the authoritarian moment picks up on a curve, an arc, if you will, that in fact you were first describing and brainwashed. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the, the sort of authoritarian, top-down control that you saw in classrooms, you know, going all the way back to the 60s, but certainly you know, in the 2000s when I was going to college, it's gotten a lot worse since then. I will say I've been speaking on college campuses since about 2004, and even in the last decade, it's gotten markedly worse. I'd say since 2014 on, the risks to speakers in terms of safety that require actual security, the sorts of restrictions that are put on college campus speakers, the amount of ire and rage, if you disagree on a college campus, has gone up markedly over the course of the last seven or eight years. So when I was writing about what was going on on college campuses and the sort of liberal bias and indoctrinational bias that was happening on college campuses in 2004, there were a lot of people in the conservative movement who pushed back with the idea, well, it's happening on college campus, but who cares? They'll get out into the real world, they'll change, they'll adapt, because the real world requires you to actually receive other ideas and deal with those other ideas. And as it turns out, the people I was graduating college with went out and changed the world around them as opposed to the world around them changing them. Yep. You know, I was very struck in terms of this rising authoritarianism. I went back just to get a sense of George McGovern as a parallel for half of the Biden system, Jimmy Carter's incompetence being the other half. And I read Theodore White's Making the President in 1972, which is a remarkably current book. You wouldn't think that a book that's now more than 40 years old would be that current. But he has a line in there trying to explain the rise of the radical left around McGovern. And he says that the liberal idea had become the liberal theology and that the rigidity had set in. He's writing in 72, and everything he describes there I think metastasizes, gets worse and worse and worse. And now we're living in the full ripeness of a radically out of touch with reality authoritarianism. And I think your description is exactly right. Leaving campus, rather than having reality change them, they set out to change reality to fit their pre-existing views. And the result, of course, has been a disaster because in the end, reality is bigger than the ideological views of a generation. Now, we're describing all this in the middle of the Afghanistan disaster. And I'm curious, from your perspective, you've both tweeted, enjoying the myriad of fact checks about Joe Biden not falling asleep, and the significant lack of fact checks about Joe Biden's daily lies about the Afghanistan debacle. And then you did a video 
uh, brutal timeline leading up to Biden's catastrophe. What's your sense of how bad Afghanistan is and what its impact will be? I mean, I think it's horrific. I think it's the worst foreign policy debacle I've seen in my lifetime. And I was born in 84, so I don't remember the fall of Saigon or the Iranian hostage crisis, but it just seems that from studying history, Joe Biden decided to take every foreign policy crisis from about 1973 to 1989 and just wrap it all in a ball and do it at once. So we get the fall of Saigon, except significantly worse because we're handing the country back to the people who helped preside over the al-Qaeda attack on the American homeland on 9-11, except we also gave them you know, $60 billion of American military armament. So that's been excellent. We are conflating the fall of Saigon with the Iran hostage crisis, which involved some 52 American hostages in Iran. And now we are talking about a minimum of 250 Americans who are held behind enemy lines. That doesn't include green card holders, of whom there are presumably thousands, or the Afghan allies who work with us, of whom there are presumably tens of thousands. So it's way worse than the Iran hostage crisis. And then we had, obviously, the giant suicide bombing last week, which is reminiscent of the Hezbollah bombing of the American barracks in Lebanon in 82, which obviously caused us to withdraw from Lebanon. And this bombing exacerbated the Biden rush to exit, leaving Americans behind. And then I think what this is going to end with is with the United States you know, participating in Iran-Contra, except about the Contras. It's just going to be us shipping money to the Taliban, presumably to free American hostages, because we have no other options. We don't have any diplomats on the ground. We don't have any soldiers on the ground. This so-called over-the-horizon capacity involves us launching drones from hundreds of miles away, six hours of airtime before we even get to Afghanistan. So Joe Biden has facilitated a massive disaster just in terms of what he's done in Afghanistan. And that's ignoring all the geostrategic consequences of undercutting an American ally that we spent 20 years building up and basically saying to all of our other allies around the world that you better start triangulating pretty quickly because we are just not a trustworthy source of support. That's number one. If you're Taiwan or if you're Israel, or if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're anybody, if you're Europe at this point, if you're Latvia or Estonia, if you look to the United States as a solid base for support in case some aggressive dominant power like China or Russia decides to move on you or Iran, why would that faith be well-placed? So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that all of our enemies know this. So terrorist groups are flooding into Afghanistan. Terrorist groups all over the world are cheering this, realizing that maybe bin Laden was right in 99, 2000 when he was saying that America was a paper tiger. And if you're China, why wouldn't you be casting your hungry eyes on Taiwan? I mean, they're going to get all the rare earth's minerals out of Afghanistan. I noticed that despite Jake Sullivan and the entire idiotic diplomatic team at the White House suggesting that there was some sort of huge diplomatic coup in getting 100 countries to sign on to a statement requesting that the Taliban allow people to leave, there were two countries that were not signed on to that statement, nor were they signed on to the UN Security Council resolution, Russia and China, because both of those countries have interests adversarial to our own, and both of those countries are willing to take full advantage of American weakness. So there was no goal here. There was no interest here. This was not America's longest endless war. It was not. We had 2,500 troops on the ground. We had no American casualties since February 2020 until Joe Biden decided to pull out. And then we experienced the deadliest day for Americans in Afghanistan since 2011. It's a full-scale debacle on every level it's possible for it to be a debacle. And Joe Biden is simply hoping that the American attention span remains seven seconds long, which is why he keeps checking his watch at Dover Air Base while the bodies are coming home, because every second that passes takes him closer to the possibility that the media switch their attention to something else and Americans forget about the debacle. I, I hope that it doesn't go that way. NBC just came out and said that only 25 percent of the American people approve of Biden's handling in Afghanistan. When you look at it from that standpoint, that's a pretty steep hole to climb out of. Yeah, I think that the only way that he climbs out of that hole is, again, the attention shift. So if 
there is any attention that remains on the Americans who are stuck there, who are sending out videos to people saying we need to get out. Or if ISIS starts beheading Americans in Afghanistan, it'll stay top of mind and, and top of news. If, however, as I think Joe Biden hopes, this just turns into, guys, we're trying to get our guys out. It's a long diplomatic process. It could take years. And every so often, the Taliban lets somebody out because we toss them a pallet full of cash, the way we did with the Iranians under Obama. And then the Taliban release somebody. Then Joe Biden will continue to claim victory. And the media will shift from, well, yeah, that was a pretty big debacle. And that really was bad. But we were going to get out anyway. And was there really a way we weren't going to get out with serious problems? After all, only 13 Americans died. And we did airlift. Like, you can see the narrative changing even this early. The New York Times has a piece right now on its webpage surveying a so-called swing district in California. That district went 54-44 in favor of Biden, talking about how despite the fact that people are pretty unhappy with how Biden did this, most of them agree with Biden's overall policy and are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. You can see the media shifting in real time. My hope that the media would continue to hold him accountable. I'm surprised they held him as accountable as they did for this long, frankly. You've contributed your part to creating an alternative media when you and Jeremy Boring created The Daily Wire in 2015. What led you to create The Daily Wire? So we created The Daily Wire as an explicit conservative alternative to the mainstream media. I mean, every single one of our pieces at the bottom of the piece, news or commentary, says we're a conservative news site. And so we are providing news from that perspective. And our goal was to take advantage of many of the marketing opportunities that we thought had been sort of left on the side by other conservative publications, many of which were doing a good job reporting, but many of whom did not you know, have the same sort of marketing tactics that we did. And so we decided that we could make a difference in the space by broadening the ability for people to see our material. And so, you know, we have a page that does 150 million page views a month, somewhere in that neighborhood. The podcast that I do is accessed by well over 2 million people a day in all of its various sort of formats. So we've been very successful in being able to use sophisticated marketing mechanisms in order to broaden the opportunity for people to see conservative content. That was sort of the idea behind Daily Wire. I was noticing that a video being put out by, I guess, the Department of Education under Biden on welcoming children back to school and encouraging them not to be bullied if they happen to be transgender, etc., it's almost exactly what you would think a woke welcome back to school would be, except that it's paid for by your tax dollars and being distributed nationwide by your government. And it talks about bullying, which reminded me that in 2013, you published Bullies, How the Left's Culture of Fear and Intimidation Silences Americans. Isn't there something grandly ironic in the left specializing in bullying and then complaining about being bullied? Yeah, I mean, I think what the left likes to do is they like to suggest that anybody who disagrees with them, whether they're polite or not, is in fact a bully who's encroaching on their values. And from their perspective, you see where this is coming from. There's a really good book out by a guy named Carl Truman right now that I think it's one of the most important books in the last five, 10 years about the rise of a certain alternative form of identity that's happened in the West. It used to be that human beings sort of formed their identity around how they interacted with the civilizing institutions around them. You grew up as a child, children, as everybody who's a parent knows, are smaller barbarians. I have three of them. They're wonderful, but they're barbarians. And then you spend your life trying to civilize them 
and adjusting them to institutions and civilization. And you, you make them more civilized. This is literally the process of civilization. And over time, instead of your identity being formed in conjunction with the institutions and civilizing influences around you, instead, identity came to be seen as what I feel internally. And once your identity is entirely what you feel internally, what's been termed expressive individualism or emotivism, once you start believing that what you are is what you feel, then any threat to what you feel is a threat to what you are. Right? This is why you see the left use phrases like, you're attacking my identity, you're attacking me. If you refuse to acquiesce to people's perspectives on themselves or to their perspectives about the world that affect how they see themselves, then this is seen as an aggressive attack on them. And so if you say men are men and women are women, for example, which is biologically obvious, if you say that, this is now an erasure, right? It's an attack on an, another person's identity. If you say, I disagree with you about politics and here's why, if that person holds those political views so closely that they're you know, woven into their feelings and into their identity, that's an attack on their identity now. And so everything that you know, can be controversial has become a form of microaggression that ought to be extirpated. That's the sort of view of the left wing. And that does make them bullies because they're willing to use any resources at their disposal in order to silence people to end that supposed threat. Do you think that bullying and intimidation and fear from the left is worse now than when you wrote the book? Oh, no question. I mean, there's no question because it's also become institutionalized. And we had the woke mobs on the prowl back in 2013. You had the media that would sort of crowd source attacks on people, whether it was Joe the plumber in 2008 or whether it was Mitt Romney and putting his dog on top of his car in 2012. And that sort of stuff was not you know, anything new. But what has changed, I think, since then is the institutionalization of all of that, right? You now have corporate heads who are trying to bully their employees into submission. And you now have corporate heads who are willing to please the woke mob by doing exactly what the woke mob wants. If the woke mob starts shouting about how Major League Baseball needs to remove the all-star game from Georgia over a voting law that looks very similar to Delaware's voting law, then the result is that MLB pulls the game from Georgia and puts it in Colorado, right? The willingness of corporations to follow the leader here is pretty incredible because of pressure from both outside and inside. There's an inside-outside game. You have 20% of your corporate staff that's very woke that are threatening litigation or at least threatening to make trouble. And then you have a media that's very much allied with the wokes and they're putting pressure on the outside. And all of this is supposed to have a market effect on your corporation. There have been some pretty good studies done, one from Harvard Business Review, that looked at how corporations are viewed by the public and how that translates into sort of public perceptions politically. And what they found is that if a corporation was perceived as neutral, then people had a certain feeling about it. If people perceived that corporation as liberal, it was the exact same result as if it was neutral. People really didn't care about the politics. It was fine. If it was perceived as conservative, its public approval ratings dropped by 30%. And that 30% drop was entirely attributable to people from the left now believing that the corporation was evil. People on the right don't care about the politics of corporations, generally speaking. They just want to buy a product or a service or a good. And if you are on the left, then you have decided that everything is political, right? Going all the way back to the 60s, the personal is political, and that's your consumption habits as well. And so if you can use your market power to cudgel corporations into doing what you want, then they too can become tools in your arsenal. From their standpoint, everything becomes a target and nothing can be neutral. Right. Neutral disappears. And that's, I think, why so many people feel totally under assault, like an overwhelming wave of being hit. Right, you turn on a baseball game and suddenly you've got people kneeling for the national anthem. Or you go to school and suddenly your kid is explaining to you why they're reading Ibram X. Kendi. Or you go to a movie and there's some sort of messaging about how 
if you voted for Trump, you're actually a xenophobe. It's just everywhere and it feels absolutely overwhelming. And so what you're seeing as a result, I think, is the big sort continuing politically. And originally, there was this sort of notion with the big sort going back to the 70s and 80s that people were going to find kind of small communities that they liked within a bigger community. So people who are red in outlook in a blue state were just going to find kind of redder areas in blue states and live there or find local communities, local churches to interface with. Instead, you're now seeing this happen on a state level. I took my family and my company completely out of California. My company is located in Nashville. My family and I are located in South Florida. We deliberately sought out a red state. We didn't want to be in a blue state. And I think you're starting to see more and more people do this, realizing that if I have a choice between living in an ocean where everything that I oppose is what surrounds me and trying to raise my children in that ocean, or I theoretically could just move somewhere else. And now most of the people tend to agree with my values. At least they're not threatening my values. That's a pretty easy choice, especially when the tax rate here is zero. The tax rate in California was 13%. Yeah, I was going to say, that was, I assume, a pretty profitable decision. Oh, yeah. Thank God. Florida is a wonderful state. 0% state tax rate is definitely helpful. Look, there's a reason why California is going to lose congressional seats and why Texas and and Tennessee and Florida are going to pick up congressional seats. People are going to leave the places where it is bad to live, and they're going to move to places where it is good to live. The only problem is that a lot of the population centers are still very Democrat, and so they're going to start trying to create more and more power to the federal level so they can control all of these wayward red states that aren't doing what they want. Right. In a very real sense, the blue states have to have federal funding, both for their pension liabilities and to pay off their public employee unions. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at the the debts that are being run, the unfunded liabilities in California, I mean, it, it ranges into the hundreds of billions of dollars if not trillions. I mean, it's it's an astonishing amount of debt that they've piled up. And then they lie about it, right? They say, oh, well, you know, the debt is actually funded because the money that we're investing on behalf of CalPERS, for example, that's going to accrue at a rate of 7% a year. Okay, well, if I could be guaranteed a rate of 7% a year, I'd invest with CalPERS. Are you out of your mind? Like, <laughs> What is your baseline rate here? But they just lie about the finances so that they can pretend that the deficits don't exist. The system that we're seeing is, I think, compounded by the rise of the oligarchs and the totalitarian attitude of Twitter and Facebook and Google and Apple. We recently had George Farmer, who's the CEO of Parler, talking about Parler as an alternative because of their experience, which was they got knocked out. I mean, it was just sort of an automatic, you know, we don't like you and you're too conservative and goodbye. And he talked about the complexities of creating an alternative electronic highway that survives despite these guys. How do you see all of that playing out? I mean, this is what truly, I think, frightened me most over the past seven, eight months before the current debacle was what happened in the aftermath of January 6th, to me, was much more threatening to American rights than what happened on January 6th. And that's not downplaying what happened on January 6th. I thought that that was awful. And I think all those people who participated in criminal activity should go to jail and will end up in jail. But you know, the true threat to the Republic was not a bunch of idiots running into the Capitol building, getting themselves arrested, and then three hours later, the Congress going ahead and doing what it had gathered to do in the first place. The notion that this was an existential threat to the democracy is utterly asinine and disconnected from reality on every possible level. There was no institutional support for what people were doing there when you had General Milley saying things like, it's like the Reichstag fire, which doesn't even make any sense. As you know, because you're a historian, I mean, the notion that this was anything remotely like the Reichstag fire, which was number one set by a communist, number two, 
used by Hitler in order to retain power. That doesn't even make sense here. The, the idea here is that these were Trump supporters who were doing this. And then Trump was, what, going to retain power because he had to restore order at the Capitol? Milley, for a guy who's supposed to be smart, he is not particularly impressive. But put that aside. What happened in the immediate aftermath of January 6th was this massive blowback toward basic American rights. So Parler gets knocked offline because Parler is supposedly being used as a place for people to gather in advance of January 6th. Now, of course, we have some federal investigative studies that suggest that there really wasn't much pre-planning of an actual armed insurrection at the Capitol building. But put that aside, Parler was used less than Twitter and Facebook were. Parler gets completely knocked offline by Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services is a neutral service provider. Amazon Web Services is not a political actor. And yet you have Amazon Web Services now saying that Parler has to be knocked offline for not restricting its material enough. This is really dangerous stuff. That's the equivalent of AT&T saying that you need to be knocked offline because we don't really like the language that you've been using on your phone calls with your friends. Neutral service providers were supposed to be neutral. And once neutral service providers basically start saying that they get to decide what lives on their technology and what doesn't on the basis of politics, you got a really ugly situation on your hands because virtually everybody is reliant on these giant neutral service providers to do exactly that. So you know, Parler getting knocked offline was scary. The, the Democrats immediately talking about how there needed to be full-scale investigations into how free speech was used. There needed to be a rethink on how free speech was used online. That sort of stuff is truly authoritarian in the classical sense. You know, I talk in the book a lot about kind of social authoritarianism and authoritarian attitudes, but that's authoritarianism in the classic sense, which is the government actually using its power to violate individual rights on behalf of their own political perspective. That is cropping up very, very quickly. You see it with regard to social media all the time, where Democrats are openly threatening social media that if they do not censor the material Democrats want censored, maybe Democrats will remove their liability protections. Okay, well, that effectively is making these companies their agents in cracking down on free speech, which should be illegal. When the New York Post, which is the oldest newspaper in America and the fourth largest, when it can get knocked out just before an election, because it's printing about Hunter Biden. I thought that was egregious. I mean, when people say it was the election stolen, my answer is yes, but not on election day. It was stolen because of what the founder of Facebook did in giving away $400 million to increase turnout specifically in Democratic precincts. It was stolen by the deliberate destruction of communications capabilities, of which the Hunter Biden story is a perfect example. When you have a situation now where a former president of the United States is banned, but the Taliban spokesperson is on the system. I mean, how can it be a rational world where these people sitting around Silicon Valley have no notion who the Taliban would kill if they got a shot at them? I mean, these are exactly the people who the Taliban would regard as threats culturally, and they would just kill all of them. And these guys sit around and they think it's clever that they allow the Taliban spokesman to be on their system. And I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. I think that for a lot of the social media heads, I think when they started their platforms, they thought that they were the advocates for free speech. I mean, if you look at Zuckerberg's early speeches, they were very much like this, or even Jack Dorsey's. And then over time, particularly after 2016, there was a severe push from the left that said the only reason Trump won is because you guys allowed this sort of speech on your platforms and we are going to come after you. And I think a lot of these companies started to act out of fear 
And now they've got completely incoherent standards, as you mentioned, where Donald Trump is banned from posting on Twitter, but the Taliban is okay with posting on Twitter. Because after all, they're not violating the rules. They're just probably going to take you know any American collaborators out in the street and shoot them in the face. But aside from that, they're really not violating any rules per se. <laughs> Everything is reactionary. And I don't think that many of these corporate heads, this is true more broadly, are themselves woke. I just think that they are reactive to the woke. And so all it would take is for a few of them to just say no, and a lot of this would stop. But they won't say no. Instead, they're so afraid that they are just reacting day in and day out. And this is creating incoherent standards that have no through line. And then when people point out that there's no through line, they react to the fact that there's no through line by cracking down harder. Let me ask you about two popular opinion things, which I think are enormous opportunities, but I don't quite see the conservative movement necessarily or, or the Republicans organizing themselves. One is Oregon, where, as you know, the governor signed a law that basically eliminates any kind of standard for reading, writing, or mathematics in order to graduate from high school. And Rasmussen did a national survey, and by 81 to 12, the American people repudiate the idea that there should be no standards, and in fact, overwhelmingly believe that it hurts the poor and it hurts minorities when you have no standards. Isn't that the kind of massive majority about something that's very personal and very human that an aggressive, articulate conservative movement would use to profoundly shift the whole context of American politics? I mean, absolutely. I think that getting Democrats, particularly top-level Democrats, actually own that sort of rhetoric is sometimes difficult. So this is what we saw with the defund the police movement. It did real damage to Democrats down ballot. At the top of the ticket, it didn't because Joe Biden was on the one hand sort of appeasing the defund the police gang by saying, yeah, we should shift money over to mental health and to various other sort of priorities. But he was also saying, I'm really, really against defund the police. So at the top level of American politics, it's hard to pin top level Democratic politicians down to the position that there shouldn't be any testing and there should be no accountability and no standards for passing this stuff. But on the lower level where you have you know, less, I would say, wishy-washy or maybe adept politicians, then I think that you can do some real damage. And I think that you're starting to see that with the critical race theory controversy. I think that you're going to see a real backlash in many of these purple states against advocates who believe that critical race theory ought to be taught or implemented or equity principles demand that we get rid of meritocratic standards. I think you will see a backlash to that. I think right now it's ground up, but there are some politicians, I think, who are capable of taking advantage of that and who are articulate out there. I'm kind of hopeful for the next generation of Republican politicians, frankly, because I think that they're combining some of the aggressiveness of Trump with you know, some of the policy expertise of maybe some of his forebears. If you can find politicians who retain Trump's aggressive streak, particularly with regards to the media, and at the same time, avoid many of the pitfalls that come with Trump's character issues, then that's a recipe for some level of success, I think. Ben, I've been working on this new project called the American Majority Project. And one of the results we came up with is if you use the term free enterprise capitalism and you use the term big government socialism, it turns out to be a 59 to 16 distinction. And when you consider that every single Democratic senator and every single Democratic House member voted for Bernie Sanders' $3.5 trillion big government socialist bill. I just think there's an opportunity here for 2022 to be a dramatically bigger election than people expect. 
I totally agree with you. I think 2022 is lining up for Republicans in a pretty dramatic way. I would be shocked if they don't take the House. I originally thought that they were at a pretty severe disadvantage in the Senate. Uh, now, I, I think that they are actually at a pretty significant advantage in the Senate. You have a couple of candidates who are looking to jump into races, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, for example, and Sununu in New Hampshire. Uh, I think Republicans could wind up with majorities in both houses. I think that the question for Republicans in the Senate, it's going to be more questions about Wisconsin and Ohio, frankly, than Nevada and New Hampshire. If they're able to hold all of that, then they'll be in really good shape going into 2024. And frankly, I think 2024 is lining up for them pretty well, considering that the president of the United States is not with us. He's not been with us for some time. Uh, and his successor in waiting, Kamala Harris, is one of the worst politicians in modern American history. She's like Hillary Clinton without the charm. And I just don't understand you know, what Democrats think their future looks like. In 2020, I think that they believed that just like they did in 2012, I think they believed they'd won an everlasting majority that would be solid for all time. And I think they're surprised to learn that Americans are not in favor of that. And that the only reason that Joe Biden won as many votes as he did is because Americans were just saying, can you just be like dead and moderate? Like those are the two things you campaigned on, right? Not alive and moderate. And instead, Joe Biden gave them one of those things. And I don't think that that is a winning message four years from now to be not alive and radical is a really bad combo. Somebody said he might actually have done better had he stayed in the basement. Oh, 100%. I'm amazed at how radical his policy has been. The fundamental misunderstanding that Twitter is not real life for Democrats is really amazing to watch, right? Joe Biden won the primaries and the election on the basis that Twitter is not real life, right? He rejected defund the police. He told the squad basically to head in from time to time. And then he gets in office and he immediately says, equity is going to be at the heart of every single policy I do. Also, I'm going to spend more money than has ever been seen by God or man. And I'm going to pull out of Afghanistan and completely hand over our foreign policy to the predations of the Chinese, the Taliban, and the Russians. And this is my plan. And Americans are like, wait, what? We didn't, what now? Like, all we wanted was for the bad tweets to stop, right? That's all, that's all we wanted. <laughs> and for those who voted for Biden, that really does constitute a huge number of people who voted against Trump. Like, no one voted for Biden. A lot of people voted against Trump, but nobody voted for Biden. And if they did vote for Biden, it's because, again, they thought that he was just going to be a placeholder. He himself campaigned this way, right? He said that he was going to basically be a placeholder. And then he gets in and he's all of a sudden like George McGovern in terms of governance and Jimmy Carter in terms of affect. And you're like, this is not at all what anybody bargained for. No, it's an interesting recipe for disaster. Let me ask you one last thing. You have the authoritarian moment, how the left weaponized America's institutions against dissent. You've been one of the leading students and publishers on this whole question of left-wing totalitarianism in the United States. What's your next big project? So one of the things that we've been trying to do at Daily Wire is perform sort of what we preach. So there are a couple of solutions that I recommend at the end of authoritarian moment. One is pushing back from inside institutions. You know, if they've renormalized institutions by taking 20% of a population being very aggressive in pushing their perspective, we can do the same. There's no reason we can't push back in the same way. But the other thing that we've really tried to do is build alternatives. So one of the things we've been doing at Daily Wire is trying to push into the entertainment space and provide an alternative for people who are not interested in paying Hollywood to produce propaganda about how bad they are. And so we brought out a movie earlier this year called Run, Hide, Fight. We have another couple of movies that are in the pipeline that we're looking forward to releasing next year. We're going to start doing comedy specials and kids content. And we just want to start providing an alternative to the dominance institutionally of the left in nearly every institution. And so any place we see a market opening, we're going to go there. The good news for us is that as the left continues to force 
Republicans and conservatives and people who just don't think like them out into the cornfield, that becomes an awful big crowd. We can market to that crowd. That's great. Well, you've already made an astonishing number of contributions to explaining what's been happening in America, offering hope for the future, literally reaching out and networking with millions of Americans. And I'm personally very grateful that you would take this time and share with us. And I wish you the best with your new book, The Authoritarian Moment. And I can assure you that as you continue to be productive, we'll continue to try to highlight it for you. Hey, thank you so much. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Ben Shapiro. You can learn more about The Authoritarian Moment, how the left weaponized America's institutions against dissent on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.